Letter eighteen of the Shirley Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shirley Letters from California Mines in eighteen fifty one and eighteen fifty two by Dame Shirley. Louise Amelia Knapp Smith Clapp. Letter the nineteenth. Murder, theft, riot, hanging, whipping, etc. From our log cabin, Indian Bar, August fourth, eighteen fifty two. We have lived through so much of excitement for the last three weeks, dear M, that I almost shrink from relating the gloomy events that have marked their flight. But if I leave out the darker shades of our mountain life, the picture will be very incomplete. In the short space of twenty-four days we have had murders, fearful accidents, bloody deaths, a mob, whippings, a hanging, an attempt at suicide, and a fatal duel. But to begin at the beginning, as, according to rule, one ought to do. I think that, even among these beautiful hills, I never saw a more perfect bridal of the earth and sky than that of Sunday, the eleventh of July. On that morning I went with a party of friends to the head of the ditch, a walk of about three miles in length. I do not believe that nature herself ever made anything so lovely as this artificial brooklet. It glides like a living thing through the very heart of the forest, sometimes creeping softly on, as though with muffled feet, through a wilderness of aquatic plants, sometimes dancing gaily over a white pebbled bottom now making a sunshine in a shady place across the mossy roots of the majestic old trees and anon leaping with a grand anthem adown the great solemn rocks which lie along its beautiful pathway a sunny opening at the head of the ditch is a garden of perfumed shrubbery and many-tinted flowers all garlanded with the prettiest vines imaginable and peopled with an infinite variety of magnificent butterflies these last were of every possible colour pink, blue, and yellow, shining black splashed with orange, purple flashed with gold, white, and even green, we returned about three in the evening, loaded with fragrant bundles, which, arranged in jars, tumblers, pitchers, bottles, and pails—we are not particular as to the quality of our vases in the mountains, and love our flowers as well in their humble chalices as if their beautiful heads lay against a background of marble or porcelain—made the dark old cabin a bower of beauty for us. Shortly after our arrival, a perfectly deafening volley of shouts and yells elicited from my companion the careless remark that the customary Sabbath day's fight was apparently more serious than usual. Almost as he spoke there succeeded a death-like silence, broken in a minute after by a deep groan at the corner of the cabin, followed by the words, "'Why, Tom, poor fellow, are you really wounded?' Before we could reach the door it was burst violently open by a person who inquired hurriedly for the doctor, who, luckily, happened at that very moment to be approaching. The man who called him then gave us the following excited account of what had happened. He said that in a melee between the Americans and the foreigners, Domingo, a tall, majestic-looking Spaniard, a perfect type of the novelistic bandit of old Spain, had stabbed Tom Summers, a young Irishman but a naturalized citizen of the United States, and that, at the very moment, said Domingo, with a Mexicana hanging upon his arm, and brandishing threateningly the long bloody knife with which he had inflicted the wound upon his victim, was parading up and down the street unmolested. 
It seems that when Tom Summers fell, the Americans, being unarmed, were seized with a sudden panic and fled. There was a rumour, unfounded, it was afterwards proved, to the effect that the Spaniards had on this day conspired to kill all the Americans on the river. In a few moments, however, the latter rallied and made a rush at the murderer, who immediately plunged into the river and swam across to Missouri Bar. Eight or ten shots were fired at him while in the water, not one of which hit him. He ran like an antelope across the flat, swam thence to Smith's Bar, and escaped by the road leading out of the mountains from the junction. Several men went in pursuit of him, but he was not taken, and without doubt is now safe in Mexico. In the meanwhile the consternation was terrific. The Spaniards, who, with the exception of six or eight, knew no more of the affair than I did, thought that the Americans had arisen against them, and our own countrymen, equally ignorant, fancied the same of the foreigners. About twenty of the latter, who were either sleeping or reading in their cabins at the time of the émeute, aroused by the cry of, Down with the Spaniards, barricaded themselves in a drinking saloon, determined to defend themselves as long as possible against the massacre which was fully expected would follow this appalling shout. In the bake-shop, which stands next door to our cabin, young Tom Summers lay straightened for the grave. He lived but fifteen minutes after he was wounded while over his dead body a spanish woman was weeping and moaning in the most piteous and heart-rending manner the rich barians who had heard a most exaggerated account of the rising of the spanish against the americans armed with rifles pistols clubs dirks etc were rushing down the hill by hundreds each one added fuel to his rage by crowding into the little bakery to gaze upon the blood-bathed bosom of the victim yet warm with the life which but an hour before it had so triumphantly worn. Then arose the most fearful shouts of, "'Down with the Spaniards! Drive every foreigner off the river! Don't let one of the murderous devils remain! Oh, if you have a drop of American blood in your veins, it must cry out for vengeance upon the cowardly assassins of poor Tom!' All this, mingled with the most horrible oaths and execrations, yelled up as if in mockery into that smiling heaven which, in its fair Sabbath calm, bent unmoved over the hell which was raging below. After a time the more sensible and sober part of the community succeeded in quieting, in a partial degree, the enraged and excited multitude. During the whole affair I had remained perfectly calm, in truth much more so than I am now when recalling it. The entire catastrophe had been so unexpected— and so sudden in its consummation, that I fancy I was stupefied into the most exemplary good behaviour. F. and several of his friends, taking advantage of the lull in the storm, came into the cabin and entreated me to join the two women who were living on the hill. At this time it seemed to be the general opinion that there would be a serious fight, and they said I might be wounded accidentally if I remained on the bar. As I had no fear of anything of the kind, I pleaded hard to be allowed to stop, but when told that my presence would increase the anxiety of our friends, of course, like a dutiful wife, I went on to the hill. We three women, left entirely alone, seated ourselves upon a log overlooking the strange scene below. The bar was a sea of heads, bristling with guns, rifles, and clubs. We could see nothing— but fancied from the apparent quiet of the crowd that the miners were taking measures to investigate the sad events of the day. All at once we were startled by the firing of a gun, and the next moment, the crowd dispersing, we saw a man led into the log cabin, while another was carried, apparently lifeless, into a Spanish drinking saloon. 
from one end of which were burst off instantly several boards, evidently to give air to the wounded person. Of course we were utterly unable to imagine what had happened, and, to all our perplexity and anxiety, one of the ladies insisted on believing that it was her own husband who had been shot, and as she is a very nervous woman, you can fancy our distress. It was in vain to tell her, which we did over and over again, that that worthy individual wore a blue shirt and the wounded person a red one. She doggedly insisted that her dear M. had been shot, and, having informed us confidentially, and rather inconsistently, that she should never see him again, never, never, plumped herself down upon the log in an attitude of calm and ladylike despair, which would have been infinitely amusing had not the occasion been so truly a fearful one. Luckily for our nerves, a benevolent individual, taking pity upon our loneliness, came and told us what had happened. It seems that an Englishman— the owner of a house of the vilest description, a person who is said to have been the primary cause of all the troubles of the day, attempted to force his way through the line of armed men which had been formed at each side of the street. The guard very properly refused to let him pass. In his drunken fury he tried to wrest a gun from one of them, which, being accidentally discharged in the struggle, inflicted a severe wound upon a Mr. Oxley and shattered in the most dreadful manner the thigh of Señor Pizarro, a man of high birth and breeding, a porteño of Buenos Aires. This frightful accident recalled the people to their senses, and they began to act a little less like madmen than they had previously done. They elected a vigilance committee, and authorized persons to go to the junction and arrest the suspected Spaniards. The first act of the committee was to try a Mexicana who had been foremost in the fray. She has always worn male attire, and upon this occasion, armed with a pair of pistols, she fought like a very fury. Luckily, inexperienced in the use of firearms, she wounded no one. She was sentenced to leave the bar by daylight, a perfectly just decision, for there is no doubt that she is a regular little demon. Some went so far as to say she ought to be hanged, for she was the indirect cause of the fight. You see, always it is the old cowardly excuse of Adam in Paradise— the woman tempted me, and I did eat, as if the poor frail head, once so pure and beautiful, had not sin enough of its own, dragging it forever downward, without being made to answer for the wrong-doing of a whole community of men. The next day the committee tried five or six Spaniards, who were proven to have been the ringleaders in the Sabbath-day riot. Two of them were sentenced to be whipped, the remainder to leave the bar that evening, the property of all to be confiscated to the use of the wounded persons. Oh, Mary, imagine my anguish when I heard the first blow fall upon those wretched men. I had never thought that I should be compelled to hear such fearful sounds, and although I immediately buried my head in a shawl, nothing can efface from memory the disgust and horror of that moment. I had heard of such things, but heretofore had not realized that in the nineteenth century men could be beaten like dogs, much less that other men not only could sentence such barbarism, but could actually stand by and see their own manhood degraded in such disgraceful manner. One of these unhappy persons was a very gentlemanly young Spaniard, who implored for death in the most moving terms. He appealed to his judges in the most eloquent manner, as gentlemen, as men of honour, representing to them that to be deprived of life was nothing in comparison with the never-to-be-effaced stain of the vilest convict's punishment to which they had sentenced him. 
Finding all his entreaties disregarded, he swore a most solemn oath that he would murder every American that he should chance to meet alone, and as he is a man of the most dauntless courage, and rendered desperate by a burning sense of disgrace which will cease only with his life, he will doubtless keep his word. Although, in my very humble opinion, and in that of others more competent to judge of such matters than myself, these sentences were unnecessarily severe, yet so great was the rage and excitement of the crowd that the Vigilance Committee could do no less. The mass of the mob demanded fiercely the death of the prisoners, and it was evident that many of the committee took side with the people. I shall never forget how horror-struck I was— bombastic as it now sounds, at hearing no less a personage than the Whig candidate for representative say that the condemned had better fly for their lives, for the avenger of blood was on their tracks. I am happy to say that said very worthy but sanguinary individual, the avenger of blood, represented in this case by some half-dozen gambling rowdies, either changed his mind or lost scent of his prey, for the intended victims slept about two miles up the hill quite peacefully until morning. The following facts, elicited upon the trial, throw light upon this unhappy affair. Seven miners from Old Spain, enraged at the cruel treatment which their countrymen had received on the fourth, and at the illiberal cry of down with the Spaniards, had united for the purpose of taking revenge on seven Americans, whom they believed to be the originators of their insults. All well armed, they came from the junction, where they were residing at the time, intending to challenge each one his man, and in fair fight compel their insolent aggressors to answer for the arrogance which they had exhibited more than once toward the Spanish race. Their first move, upon arriving at Indian Bar, was to go and dine at the Humboldt, where they drank a most enormous quantity of champagne and claret. Afterwards they proceeded to the house of the Englishman whose brutal carelessness caused the accident which wounded Pizarro and Oxley, when one of them commenced a playful conversation with one of his countrywomen. This enraged the Englishman, who instantly struck the Spaniard a violent blow and ejected him from the shanty. Thereupon ensued a spirited fight, which, through the exertion of a gentleman from Chile, a favourite with both nations, ended without bloodshed. This person knew nothing of the intended duel, or he might have prevented, by his wise counsels, what followed. Not suspecting for a moment anything of the kind, he went to Rich Bar. Soon after he left, Tom Summers, who is said always to have been a dangerous person when in liquor, without any apparent provocation, struck Domingo, one of the original seven, a violent blow, which nearly felled him to the earth. The latter, a man of dark antecedents, and the most reckless character, Mad with wine, rage, and revenge, without an instant's pause drew his knife and inflicted a fatal wound upon his insulter. Thereupon followed the chapter of accidents which I have related. On Tuesday, following the fatal Sabbath, a man brought news of the murder of a Mr. Bacon, a person well known on the river, who kept a ranch about twelve miles from Rich Bar. He was killed for his money by his servant, a negro, who, not three months ago, was our own cook— he was the last one anybody would have suspected capable of such an act. A party of men, appointed by the Vigilance Committee, left the bar immediately in search of him. The miserable wretch was apprehended in Sacramento, and part of the gold found upon his person. On the following Sunday he was brought in chains to Rich Bar. After a trial by the miners he was sentenced to be hanged at four o'clock in the evening. All efforts to make him confess proved futile. 
He said very truly that whether innocent or guilty they would hang him, and so he died and made no sign, with a calm indifference, as the novelists say, worthy of a better cause. The dreadful crime and death of Josh, who, having been an excellent cook, and very neat and respectful, was a favourite servant with us, added to the unhappiness which you can easily imagine that I was suffering under all these horrors. On Saturday evening, about eight o'clock, as we sat quietly conversing with the two ladies from the hill, whom, by the way, we found very agreeable additions to our society, hitherto composed entirely of gentlemen, we were startled by the loud shouting, and the rushing close by the door of the cabin which stood open, of three or four hundred men. Of course we feminines, with nerves somewhat shattered from the events of the past week, were greatly alarmed. We were soon informed that Henry Cook, vis Josh, had in a fit of the delirium tremens cut his throat from ear to ear. The poor wretch was alone when he committed the desperate deed, and in his madness, throwing the bloody razor upon the ground, ran part of the way up the hill. Here he was found almost senseless, and brought back to the Humboldt, where he was very nearly the cause of hanging poor Paganini Ned, who returned a few weeks since from the valley, for his first act on recovering himself was to accuse that culinary individual of having attempted to murder him. The mob were for hanging one poor vattle without judge or jury, and it was only through the most strenuous exertions of his friends that the life of this illustrious person was saved. Poor Ned! It was forty-eight hours before his corkscrews returned to their original graceful curl. He threatens to leave us to our barbarism, and no longer to waste his culinary talents upon an ungrateful and inappreciative people. He has sworn war to the knife against Henry, who was formerly his most intimate friend, as nothing can persuade him that the accusation did not proceed from the purest malice on the part of the would-be suicide. Their Majesties the Mob, with that beautiful consistency which usually distinguishes those august individuals, insisted upon shooting poor Harry, for, said they, and the reasoning is remarkably conclusive and clear, a man so hardened as to raise his hand against his own life will never hesitate to murder another. They almost mobbed F. for binding up the wounds of the unfortunate wretch, and for saying that it was possible he might live. At last, however, they compromised the matter by determining that if Henry should recover he should leave the bar immediately. Neither contingency will probably take place, as it will be almost a miracle if he survives. On the day following the attempted suicide, which was Sunday, nothing more exciting happened than a fight and the half-drowning of a drunken individual in the river, just in front of the Humboldt. On Sunday last the thigh of Signor Pizarro was amputated, but alas without success. He had been sick for many months with chronic dysentery, which, after the operation, returned with great violence, and he died at two o'clock on Monday morning, with the same calm and lofty resignation which had distinguished him during his illness. When first wounded, believing his case hopeless, he had decidedly refused to submit to amputation, but as time wore on he was persuaded to take this one chance for his life, for the sake of his daughter, a young girl of fifteen, at present at school in a convent in Chile, whom his death leaves without any near relative. I saw him several times during his illness, and it was melancholy indeed to hear him talk of his motherless girl, who, I have been told, is extremely beautiful, talented, and accomplished. The state of society here has never been so bad as since the appointment of a committee of vigilance. The rowdies have formed themselves into a company called the Moguls, and they parade the streets all night, 
howling, shouting, breaking into houses, taking wearied miners out of their beds and throwing them into the river, and, in short, murdering sleep, in the most remorseless manner. Nearly every night they build bonfires fearfully near some rag-shanty, thus endangering the lives, or I should rather say the property, for, as it is impossible to sleep, lives are emphatically safe, of the whole community. They retire about five o'clock in the morning, previously to this blessed event posting notices to that effect, and that they will throw any one who may disturb them into the river. I am nearly worn out for want of rest, for truly they make night hideous with their fearful uproar. Mr. Oxley, who still lies dangerously ill from the wound received on what we call the fatal Sunday, complains bitterly of the disturbances, and when poor Pizarro was dying, and one of his friends gently requested that they be quiet for half an hour and permit the soul of the sufferer to pass in peace, they only laughed and yelled and hooted louder than ever in the presence of the departing spirit, for the tenement in which he lay, being composed of green boughs only, could, of course, shut out no sounds. Without doubt, if the moguls had been sober, they would never have been guilty of such horrible barbarity as to compel the thoughts of a dying man to mingle with curses and blasphemies. But, alas, they were intoxicated, and may God forgive them, unhappy ones, for they knew not what they did. The poor exhausted miners, for even well people cannot sleep in such a pandemonium, grumble and complain, but they, although far outnumbering the rioters, are too timid to resist. All say, it is shameful, something ought to be done, something must be done, etc., and in the meantime the rioters triumph. You will wonder that the Committee of Vigilance does not interfere. It is said that some of that very committee are the ringleaders among the moguls. I believe I have related to you everything but the duel, and I will make the recital of this as short as possible, for I am sick of these sad subjects, and doubt not but you are the same. It took place on Tuesday morning, at eight o'clock, on Missouri Bar, when and where that same Englishman who has figured so largely in my letter shot his best friend. The duelists were surrounded by a large crowd, I have been told, foremost among which stood the Committee of Vigilance. The man who received his dear friend's fatal shot was one of the most quiet and peaceable citizens on the bar. He lived about ten minutes after he was wounded. He was from Ipswich, England, and only twenty-five years old when his own high passions snatched him from life. In justice to his opponent it must be said that he would willingly have retired after the first shots had been exchanged, but poor Billy Leggett, as he was formerly called, insisted upon having the distance between them shortened, and continuing the duel until one of them had fallen. There, my dear M., have I not fulfilled my promise of giving you a dish of horrors, and only think of such a shrinking, timid, frail thing as I used to be, long time ago, not only living right in the midst of them, but almost compelled to hear, if not see, the whole. I think I may without vanity affirm that I have seen the elephant. Did you see his tail? asks innocent Ada J. in her mother's letter. Yes, sweet Ada, the entire animal has been exhibited to my view. But you must remember that this is California, as the newcomers are so fond of informing us, who consider ourselves one of the oldest inhabitants of the Golden State. And now, dear M., adios. Be thankful that you are living in the beautiful quiet of beautiful A, and give up hankering, Arthur, as you know what dear creature says, California, for, believe me, this coarse, barbarous life would suit you even less than it does your sister. End of letter 19. Recorded by Rachel Ellen.
near Yosemite, California, August 5, 2008.